I'm Rosie Ward, and this is Show Up as a Leader. Strap on your bootstraps, because I swear I could have talked to my guest, Kevin Oaks, forever in this episode. There is so much synergy between our work, and I was geeking out over the alignment between both of our books and his and how we approach culture. If you're not familiar with him, you need to be, you need to get his book, you need to check out his firm's research, such important work he's doing. He is the CEO and co-founder of the world's leading HR research firm, the Institute for Corporate Productivity. He is a frequent author and international keynote speaker on next practices in human capital, and he works with business and HR executives on people practices that drive high performance. And his book, Culture Renovation, was just published in January of 2021, and it is so well-researched and it's very tactical, and it really serves as a blueprint for senior leaders to positively change organizational culture. He details 18 action steps which companies can use, and he gives examples and stories in his book from Microsoft to 3M to T-Mobile and many, many others who have successfully renovated their cultures. And we talk not about every single 18 steps, but we really talked about some of the lessons that we've learned, and we talked about how critical it is to find influencers within your organization, and that really so often people who are showing up as leaders within organizations are lost in the org chart. They're not necessarily represented by the org chart. Uh, we talk about really how you want to really listen to people, and we use the metaphor that we used in our first book, How to Build a Thriving Culture at Work, about a house. And if you think about building a house, right, we talk about how you can't skip steps if you're going to build a house. But more often than not, when we think about culture, you are coming into a remodeling project. So I so love Kevin's analogy of renovating a culture versus thinking about transforming it, meaning we still want to keep what's good. We want to anchor ourselves on that clear values and purpose, but really how can we move it forward? And we talk about what he's been doing with his own company and get to see a little bit more of his human side. And I just think there's so many useful nuggets in this organization because let's be honest, we are all influenced by our workplace culture. And so hopefully you'll get a lot out of it. All right. Well, Kevin, I am super excited to have this conversation with you today. I feel like I could probably talk to you for hours, but uh, thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks for asking me, Rosie. Glad to be here. Yeah. So we have a, a lot in common. The focus of my work for the last decade has been on culture shift in organizations. We even use a metaphor of building a house similar to you um, in, in our first book. And so I just, I'm, there's so many things I want to talk to you about, but I want to kick this off by quoting Tom Rath in the foreword of your book, because mm. I think that this uh, sets the tone for our conversation. So this is what he wrote. He said, few things are as important to an organization's long-term health as the culture that permeates its daily operations. Yet most companies have not spent enough time building a culture that produces sustainable benefits for the employees, customers, and communities they serve. As a result, employees show up each day and operate at a fraction of their capacity. Often they go home with less energy than they had when they arrived. When a culture is unhealthy, customers take note. Employees' family members notice and the residual ill effects, but it certainly does not need to be this way. In my estimation, organizations are the single best way for increasing the collective well-being of society. And I know that obviously Tom Rath is behind all the well-being research. And I just, what, what spoke to me about that is that in all the work that we do, we talk about what we call the fusion, which is the inextricable interconnectedness of the health of the organization and the health of the individual and, yeah. and how intertwined they are. And my first guest on this podcast, when we kicked it off was Bob Chapman from Barry Waymiller. And he always uses the stat that seven out of eight Americans go home feeling like they've worked for an organization that doesn't care about them and has, has this ripple effect. And so, um, so I want to, I, so I want to tee all this up because I feel like it is so important. And a question that I have been asked a lot lately is how are you looking at culture differently? And you address this some in your book, but in the midst of this pandemic, we're now for over the past year, so many workplaces 
don't have a physical space where culture is experienced, but it's now experienced in a very dispersed way. And I'm just curious of any thoughts that you're having or things that you're seeing in your research and experience about the, the shifts of culture and its importance in this dispersed environment. Yeah, you know, I think it's important to keep in mind that dispersed environment um, might have been normal for a number of companies, right? And certainly for a number of employees who have worked remotely for years and years. I, I have several in my company that keep reminding me that, you know, a lot of these issues aren't necessarily new, uh, but for a lot of people they are. And what I have been telling companies is that your culture changed during the pandemic, like it or not, you know, whether you were an office culture or remote culture or some kind of hybrid, uh, it definitely changed. Now, some of it changed for the better. And I've had lots of companies tell me, you know, about, uh, you know, different examples of where their culture has improved during the pandemic. And some of it changed for the negative. And certainly there's plenty of examples for that. And so my advice to companies is you can take two approaches here. You can be passive and just let these changes happen to your culture, or you can be proactive and do something about it and uh, begin to shape the culture you want for the future of your organization. And obviously, you know, I'm, I'm on the proactive side and, you know, uh, and I'm talking to a number of companies who are actively trying to figure out how do we make changes to our culture that preserves, you know, the, the great things about our company and preserves, you know, some of our values, some maybe our, probably our initial purpose or mission is uh, still, still intact, but prepares us better for a future where, you know, we might have more unprecedented events like we've just been through in the last year. Yeah, for sure. And we talk about uh, accidental versus an intentional culture, right? And being right. being very intentional. I don't know, I'm so sick of the word unprecedented. I can't even take it. <laughs> Me <anymore>. too. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I do think it's interesting because I feel like how companies have shown up in the face of all of the challenges of the past year is going to profoundly influence how effectively they're going to be able to shape their culture and what their experience is going to be. Because I think people are taking notice not that they didn't before, but I feel like they're taking notice even more now of how are you showing up on social issues and how are you showing up on inclusivity and are you tending to your culture or being reactive or accidental about it? Yeah, no question. It's not that it wasn't important before, but it's really um, been elevated in, in importance today. And I loved, you know, early in the pandemic, Mark Cuban had a number of great quotes around that. He, he said, you know, how you show up right now and treat your employees right now uh, is go- is going to be remembered for years, and no amount of marketing that you can that you're going to do in the future is going to uh, change that. And I think um, you know that is what's what's been really interesting about this pandemic. I had one CHRO tell me, I don't need to do another leadership assessment for my leaders in my organization for quite some time because it was very clear which leaders showed up and which disappeared, you know, during this pandemic. And, uh, you know, it provided a filter, I think, for a lot of, um, you know, a lot of organizations around the leadership that they have inside the organization, but also for the workforce. The workforce now has a much clearer idea of what their company's all about, what they value, um, how, uh, you know, how much attention they're going to pay to your, to your well-being, like you started out uh, this podcast with. So, uh, it's it's going to be a very interesting thing to look back on years from now and and see how companies weathered this. For sure. Well, and even reminds me. I know obviously your firm is leading the way in in research, and also you know we always look at um, Deloitte's research. And when they came out with their most recent human capital trends report, and really looking at this huge emphasis on are we supporting people really in integrating their personal and professional lives, and this bigger focus on well being, uh, because I think. We've seen we we've seen glimpses into people's lives and realize you know they're not just this person that might show up at a workplace or show up on a Zoom screen pre pandemic. We've got kids in the background where some people are working from a closet or a bedroom or a, you know whatever. And I think we've gotten glimpses into people's humanity like we haven't before. And and because of that, I, you know I think people have a much uh, better perspective on their coworkers. They're not just seeing that business persona; they're seeing the whole person. But it's also been a challenge, I think, for organizations that are trying to roll out policies that meet everybody's needs, you know, across the board. And there's an interesting dichotomy that's happening. You know, we've, um, you know, we've been 
taught and there's been a lot of discussion about being fair and equitable and you know more so than ever we're trying to make sure that uh, we have a work environment that is as uh, consistent across the board and as fair across the board as possible yet at the same time everybody's situation is different uh, and flexibility is key I think for organizations that really want to retain top talent but what flexibility means is you probably have to treat certain people differently than others. You know, this this pandemic has been really tough on working mothers, for instance, and there's been a lot written about that and just about how tough it's been on women in general uh, as you look across the board. And there are situations for working parents where, you know, you, you have to be much more flexible than you are with others. I had a great conversation with um, Ajay Banga, who's the CEO of MasterCard, or he just moved to executive chairman. And he was um, he was really surprised that certain CEOs came out very early on with declarations around what they were going to do with their workforce as a result of the pandemic. Some CEOs were saying, we're going to go fully remote and we're getting rid of all the corporate real estate that we have. And he said, look, that's easy to say when you're sitting in your 6,000 square foot house with awesome Wi-Fi and, you know, dedicated office. But, you know, there's a lot of employees that are trying to make it happen, like you mentioned, you know, out of their one bedroom apartment where they've got, you know, a mother-in-law and kids and dogs maybe living with them. And, you know, before the office was the respite, right? And they can't even get good Wi-Fi where they are. Or you've got the opposite approach. We've seen some CEOs, uh, Jamie Dimon at J.P. Morgan Chase comes to mind, or Reed Hastings at Netflix, who have said, we're not as productive uh, remotely, and I want everybody back in the office. And that brings up all kinds of issues as well. You know, there's a, I've talked to a few CHROs of very, very large companies that are already facing employee lawsuits. Um, you know, around uh, COVID, you know, caught, I caught COVID at work, you know, because they made me go back. We're only, you know, starting to see the, you know, just the surface of these issues pop up, I think, going forward. And so it's it's going to get very complex, I think, for organizations uh, over the next several months as we work through this. And I think the key for all organizations is you've got to you've got to take a flexible approach. You probably don't have all the answers right now. Be truthful with your workforce that, hey, we're making decisions based on what we know today. We, you know, we may change some of these things down the line, but we, you know, we're doing our best to, uh, you know, to, to make decisions in the moment. Yeah. Well, I love that. And really it's the, we can't do a one size fits all because no two companies are like, but also no two employees are like. So what I love about what you're sharing is it's really that focus of how do we create a culture where people can have their needs met knowing that no two people are the same, but I can still feel like, Hey, I can bring my gifts and talents. I can contribute to the organization's purpose. Right. And, and, and it's exactly. a win-win yeah. across the board. I love that. So I want to talk about your approach to culture and, and why I was so excited is that I, I love that. First of all, you refer to it as a renovation versus a transformation. And, and I think that's so accurate. And you even talk, you use the analogy or the metaphor of a house, right? Like usually in most cases, unless it's completely like infested, you're not going to knock it completely down and start over, right? There's parts of it that are good that you want to retain. So it's not throwing everything out the window, but it's a remo- it's a remodeling project. And you really, it's almost like an ongoing, like you're always tinkering. It's never quite quite right. there. Like you, right. And, and you may not know this, but our first book uh, is called how to build a thriving culture at work. And it came out over five years ago, um, five and a half years ago. And we actually use a metaphor in there similar to you. We have seven steps, but it's a blueprint and we use a metaphor of building a house. And we talk <laughs> about, you know, that you can't use outdated materials and skip steps. And, and, and when, and we have a training based on it, but what we talk about particularly in our training is yeah, the book is an ideal, like if you were building a company from the ground up, or if you were building a house, the reality is most organizations are doing a remodeling product project or a renovation, right? Like, right, oh my right. gosh, HGTV, we got in and found out there's cracks in the foundation and we've got some repair work to do before we're going to put on a new roof. And and so really looking at where, where are there those gaps? And so anyway, I just want you to know that, oh my gosh, I was like, yes. And, and so as I was, the reason it's so ridiculously tabbed, you can't see this on the podcast, but his book has like five gajillion tabs all over it because I still highlight and do that. But there were so many spots. I'm like, yeah, this is like our step here. Oh, this is like this step here and whatnot. And our new book came out last year at the start of the pandemic and we took it a step further and really talk about how do you create a truly human workplace? Like, you know, that, that a thriving culture is one, one part, but how do you kind of go to the next 
level. So I want to talk through some of your steps and I actually want you to push back on me. And I want to ask your, your thoughts on some stuff, because I agree with wholeheartedly with everything you said, and we have a slightly different experience with certain aspects that I would love to get your brain. Cause I love that your stuff is rooted in research. So that makes me super happy. Um, yeah, great. So, um, so I w- obviously I'm not going to go through all your 18 steps, but you know, I love that you put it into like, okay, we're going to plan. So right before you like think about before you build the house or you do a renovation plan, what you're going to do, then you build and then you, um, maintain. And so I want to, in each step, talk through a couple things and then, um, pick your brain on, on some experiences that I've had with this. So your very first step under plan is to develop and deploy a comprehensive listening um, strategy. And you talk about really understanding how the current culture is, is perceived. And one, I love that because my experience, I remember having a conversation with a CEO of the company I worked at at the time, it was a consulting firm. And I remember saying to him, like something along the lines of you are completely smoking crack. If you think that is the experience out in (laughs) Cubeville, like you are so disconnected because everybody in your executive team wants to please you and look good. That information is so filtered by the time it gets to you that you have no clue what it's actually like. And you've created a culture where people lie on surveys. So, so um, I, yeah, anyway, so I want to talk, uh, get your thoughts of like, how do you find that the best organizations truly listen to their people and find out what the experience is like and actually make it safe for them to give the feedback, good, bad, good, bad, and ugly. Yeah. So it's, um, I I say this all the time to organizations, the worst thing that the executive team can do is lock themselves in a conference room and decide what the culture is today and what needs to change going forward because they'll get it wrong. And so your uh, your comment to the executive is exactly right. They um, they need to spend the time really listening to the workforce and uncovering employee sentiment. This isn't done by the annual engagement survey. Um, that's going to give you only a you know small amount of information. It's a point in time survey that uh, often has false positives. What you need is more ongoing employee sentiment analysis. In a number of organizations, particularly during the pandemic have been surveying the workforce on a more frequent basis, either weekly, or I give examples in the book of companies that do it daily. In fact, Amazon asked one question a day, and I love how they do it because they, they, they really set a tone inside the organization each day with the question itself. Uh, one of my favorites was, is your manager a simplifier or a complexifier? And uh, that, you I know, love that sent, so sent a message to all the managers, you know, how, how are you managing your people, right? Um, but what what uh, ongoing employee sentiment and listening can do is give uh, the senior team a much better comprehensive view of what the culture is today so that you can plan uh, going forward and really have a good sense of what you need to keep and what you need to change. Now, you, you know, the house metaphor, and I, I'm sorry, I didn't know that about your book. Oh, God, no, no, that. it's great. It's great. It's a great analogy. So no, now, now awesome. you've got me intrigued and I got to go <laughs> read that. Um, but the house metaphor is a good one. You don't, um, you know, we, we divvy this up into three uh, themes, plan, build, and maintain. And what I see a lot of times are companies jump right into the build phase. They get all excited about changing the culture before they spend the time in the plan phase. And just like renovating a house, if you just start knocking down walls, eventually you're going to knock down a load-bearing wall and ruin the whole house, right? And that's what can happen in companies too. You can't just start knocking down walls. You really have to better understand what, you know, what the sentiment is and then plan accordingly and create that blueprint. Uh, so that phase to me is a, is a critical one. And I talked a lot about T-Mobile as part of that phase. I think uh, sometimes it flies under the radar, but we're going to look back on the culture renovation that John Ledger as CEO at T-Mobile at the time and the company did as one of the most remarkable turnaround stories in corporate history, going from bottom of the barrel, you know, wireless carrier uh, to today, you know, taking away lots of, of customers away from Verizon and AT&T uh, and turning themselves into, you know, a, a, a mobile powerhouse. Uh, I think a lot of that was done because they spent the time to listen and really understand what was happening, not only with their employees, but with their customer base. And those two are are, are always linked together uh, to better understand what they needed to change going forward. Yeah, for sure. 
Well, and you give so many great examples in your book. So obviously we'll be, we want everyone to go get your book. And I know one of the things you talked about that really struck me when you were talking about Microsoft is how they leverage Carol Dweck's work and looking at how are they going to really foster more of a growth mindset throughout the company. And so with, with a lot of your steps, one thing that struck me is I love that they're very tangible. They're very practical. And I'm curious if you're familiar with Bob Anderson and Bill Adams' work. So they wrote Mastering Leadership and Scaling Leadership, and they are the creators of the Leadership Circle Profile Assessment. And what I like about their work is that they talk about the inner game of leadership versus the outer game and that they both matter, right? But the inner game fundamentally runs the outer game. So the inner game is self-awareness. It's emotional intelligence. It's our mindset. It's attitudes, it's all those things. And the outer game are the skills, the competencies, you know, how I go about this stuff. And as I was reading your book, what I kept coming back to, particularly after growth mindset was mentioned so early on was, you know, if I'm going to listen to people, if I am going to determine who are the influences in my organization, if I'm going to figure out what to keep, if I'm going to co-create this vision moving forward, if I don't have a really strong inner game and I haven't equipped my leaders in the organization to be more emotionally intelligent, to know how to pause, to be less reactive, like this stuff isn't going to work as well. And I'm just curious about your thought, like with these organizations that you feature, um, how much are you aware of, like, what have they done to kind of, I'm going to say maybe lay a foundation to be able to do this stuff well, where they have a really strong inner game? Yeah, I think in many of the companies that are featured in the book, uh, it was very clear that the CEO spent a lot of time with the leadership team and leaders in general uh, on the desired behaviors they wanted inside the organization. And that's actually one of the steps early on in uh, culture renovation is define those desired behaviors and then later train uh, people on those behaviors. And you'll find that, um, you know, many of those CEOs, they didn't necessarily intend to do this, but there were certain leaders inside the organization that it was clear they were going to be a naysayer or a blocker to that culture renovation uh, that they wanted to enact. And that's one of the hardest steps, honestly, out of all the 18 is to ferret out the skeptics and the non-believers early. Uh, They can be so detrimental to what you're trying to do. Um, And instead, you've got to make sure that the team you have on board is aligned and that they are walking the talk. Employees do what leaders do. Um, So the words in the PowerPoint really aren't going to matter unless the leaders are behaving in a way that you really want to see the the organization behave long term. And so I'm a a huge believer in making sure that you, um, you know, get get the assholes out, as Bob Sutton's book said. Yeah, I love that book. (laughs) I I, I reference Bob in the, you know, in the book and love love his uh, concept there. Um, and, uh, you know, make sure that you're very clear on what behaviors you want going forward. And Satya did a great job at that early on. Um, I do use Microsoft as a fan, as a, just a perfect example of how to do culture renovation. And I think whether you're in tech or not, whether you're small or whether you're big, you can use some of the, the playbook that Microsoft used to, to enact successful culture change and the financial results will follow as they certainly did with Microsoft. And rallying the company around Carol Dweck's book, Mindset, and, and in particular, the concept of growth mindset was so important for Microsoft's culture at the time. They, um, I spend a lot of time with that company, and I don't, I don't live too far from campus. They always had a culture that really valued intelligence, and for a long time, knowledge was power inside that organization. And Satya, growing up in the organization, knew that. He really wanted an organization that really that uh, rewarded not knowledge sharing his power as opposed to knowledge is power. And he's been very vocal saying, I want a culture of learn it alls, not a culture of know it alls. And previously they had a lot of know it all behavior inside that organization. And so growth mindset was a perfect one for them to rally around the concept that uh, learning and development is so critical. You should learn from mistakes and failures, uh, which you know, I, I document in the book how he's uh, showcased that to the company many times. Uh, and that, that skills can be learned. It's not innate. Uh, you know, and your ability to share knowledge is ultimately going to make you a better person and the company better. All of those have been critical to their fabulous growth. And, uh, you know, and I, hopefully I did it justice in the book. 
Yeah, no, you definitely did. And I love it. You talk about going from a know-it-all to a learn-it-all. And I know that they've been working with Brene Brown as well, right? Moving from armored leadership to daring leadership. And it, it's, yep. it's such a, again, that's, a, I call it that inner game of, of leadership is, is, is so important. And so I'm curious about um, something because with the other thing that really struck me in your book that I kept coming back to was really thinking about Amy Emmonson's work on psychological safety. You talk a lot about, you know, like whether you were talking about inclusivity or, or what that people feel safe and that they can do this and they can take risks and they can be, um, they can give feedback and, and so many different things. And, and one of the things that Amy talks about in her work is that culture, yes, there's like overarching company culture, culture and really psychological safety resides at that local team level. As you know, there can be many subcultures within an organization. And we know that the leader of that team has a profound influence of whether or not we, we experience a good culture or whatnot. And, and so I'm curious because I, I got in this debate before we wrote our second book. um, I got in this debate with Raj Sisodia, the co-founder of conscious capitalism. And this is really the premise of our second book, rehumanizing the workplace is I always was, yep, it has to start at the top. It has to start at the top. The CEO sets the tone, which I still, I believe that. And what I have seen, and you probably see this, right? That you can have the CEO that has a good vision and and creates that message and tries to co-create with employees and it falls apart at another level of of leadership, right? Or further down. And we fell into this by accident a few years ago that it wasn't supposed to be a culture renovation at the global. It was, can you come and help this team that basically is struggling with psychological safety, is struggling with communication, is struggling getting along. And so we put our creative hats together and created a program that was multi-series. It was really a developmental program to help them from the inside out. So help them be self-aware, manage their emotions, communicate, listen, create their own little team desired, you know, uh, behaviors, right. And, and just kind of have this pocket of, okay, how do we want to show up together? And then what was interesting is that the culture of that team profoundly changed. And then another team was like, well, what'd you do? How, how, how can we get that? And, and we started to see that there was, um, there was this shift happening in the organization, not unlike grassroots organizing, where there was a shift at the local level starting to happen team by team by team, irrespective of changes in senior leadership. Now, yeah. granted, you can only get so far, but it started to create a groundswell that at, at a certain point, the executive team went, well, what's happening? Well, now maybe we should look at this and adopt this a little bit more formally in the organization. And had we tried to get it to start there, I don't think it would have happened. So it was really the ground up to get the visibility, momentum and shift. I'm curious about your, your thoughts about that, because it's, it's remarkably different than the traditional blueprint and even what you have in your book. Yeah, that can happen, you know, sort of that grassroots culture movement and, uh, you know, it works its way up and, and, you know, ultimately does change the culture of the company. Um, But it's rare. It's rare that that happens. And it's also slow um, in in happening. And uh, so it's, uh, you know, I I always love coming across those kinds of organizations where that has happened. Um, The majority of companies, though, need to move a little more quickly than that. And, you know, that's why, uh, that, you know, sort of that top down and then then get the co-creation approach of the workforce involved is, uh, you know, what a, what a Microsoft or some of the companies I featured in the book did. But I want to go back to the psychological safety because I've talked to Amy about this and I love um, I love the fact that she was talking about that in the 90s and uh, now it's become popular again, right? And sort of right. Made, Everything old is and, new again. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And Google, you know, kind of popularized it. But I you know, clearly in healthy organizations, uh, transparency is a, is a value that is very, um, you know, very prominent in those healthy organizations. And having an environment where people feel safe to say a number of things, you know, to speak up and, and talk about things that aren't, aren't right, you know, uh, certainly from an ethical perspective, or we, you know, we went through this or still going through this with the Me Too movement, um, you know, having the safety to be able to speak your mind is generally a hallmark of top organizations overall. Um, <clears throat> I, you know, I guess I've seen in um, leaders throughout a company, the more you can make sure that that's a value that you want them to embody, then you're going to create an environment overall that has that psychologically safe feeling to it. Um, 
<clears throat> I've always been a proponent that, you know, the less secrets, the better in an organization. In fact, I do that in my own company. We early on, I uh, established an open book management style. And so once a month in our own company, we go over all the financials of the company. We, you know, we've taught people what EBITDA means and we look at it, how we did versus our goals. But then we just have more of an open conversation about what's going on, what's going right, what's going wrong. You know, again, that's at, that's at an all company level. You want to make sure those conversations are happening at the individual level with those managers. And you talked about subcultures, Rosie. You know, subcultures are in every single company and every company has hundreds or thousands of subcultures. Uh, and that's fine. That's that's reality. Um, you want to also make sure, though, that those subcultures are aligned with that overall organizational culture. Where I think a lot of companies get into trouble is you've got is if you have very distinctly different cultures based on division, sometimes geography, department. Uh, that generally uh, creates a lot of you know animosity and division inside the organization. And uh, you want to make sure those subcultures are aligned with the overall company values and, and, uh, and purpose overall. Oh, for sure. I, you know, you, since you talk about T-Mobile in your book, I think about like the Wi-Fi signal, right? If there's not that synergy and laddering up, which is why I know you talk about having a purpose. And in our, in our um, most recent book, we talk about these five rehumanizing principles. And the first one we talk about is build a lighthouse. So we, we refer to lighthouse, how it, you know, cuts through the fog and grounds you. And so we really look at purpose and values as, as that lighthouse that, you know, if you're not clear about who you are, but you also haven't operationalized your values, they're not just words on a wall. Like we are crystal clear of how we behave. Cause I know one of you say, you know, we talk, we are able to talk about it when those behaviors show up that aren't good. And what are we going to do when they show up? Um, that that's so, so important and so critical. Cause I think if we, otherwise we don't have a leg to stand on with, you know, these crazy times and the disruption that we've experienced, and it's not going to be the, the end of the disruption. How do we know um, how to move forward if we don't have that to anchor us? And, and so one of the things that you talk about that I also was like, yay, um, was uh, you talk about the storytelling, right? And, and you give wonderful stats about how we're, we respond better to that emotion and story than logic and facts. And one of the things that we, we try to encourage companies to do is with that lighthouse principle is to get in that habit of regular storytelling, like whether it is a monthly or a weekly meeting, like, hey, who has an example this past week of when you've seen our values in action or when you've seen our purpose realized and what's the impact it had on you? And we always yeah. say that storytelling keeps the lighthouse illuminated, right? And, and it, it keeps that. And what's great is one of one of our clients, um, we actually backed into their purpose and why using the Simon Sinek's Find Your Why process by doing storytelling with all 545 of their employees. It was this crazy project that like even David <laughs> Mead was like, what? <laughs> but, um, but, you know, we ended up collecting at the time, you know, 400 plus stories of examples of them at their best. And that's how we backed into what their purpose is. And they created a book, the company's called Harcross, and they call it the heart of Harcross stories of us at our best. And now throughout the pandemic, I mean, they keep adding to it. And it's like, when you're feeling down, or when you're like, what is this purpose thing? Or how am I supposed to show up? It kind of re-energizes, regrounds people of, when we're at our best, this is what we do. And this is how we keep um, moving it forward. So I don't know, I just, I don't know if you necessarily have any thoughts about that, but I just, am like, I think that storytelling is so overlooked because we jump into tactics, we jump into, and we forget that we got to make time to tell stories. I love this subject because stories are what people remember, right? And they can be so powerful in organizations around for exactly the reasons you just laid out and your lighthouse uh, metaphor is a great one. I, in the book, um, had some examples around companies that I think have leveraged stories very well. Uh, one, of, one of whom was Qualcomm, who uh, did a very simple thing that I think any company can do. But for new employees coming on to, into the company, they immediately sign them up to a program called 52 Weeks. And all it is is a, each week they're emailing out a story that is historical for the company, um, but just uh, carries forward the point or the, you know, the, uh, you know, the, uh, the notion of the purpose of the organization. And, you know, there are a lot of, in Qualcomm, there are a lot about innovation and some other values that they have, but every story would really center around that and bring that value to life. And they found that uh, 
the once other employees found out about 52 weeks, they wanted to be signed up for it and get ingrained in the stories too. So it didn't, it became more than just an onboarding program, but a program to, you know, just really help employees remember the history and leverage those stories for the future as well. And then coupling the, the story um, uh, concepts in the, you know, in the chapter I wrote about this, was the concept of symbols. And symbols can help make those stories come to life. They're sort of the visual cues that bring that story um, to the forefront. Uh, I gave a few examples of symbols, um, but a couple of them that I like are Booz Allen Hamilton has five uh, values that they literally wrote in stone inside the organization. And so they have these little stones, each one has a value written on them, that they will um, ceremoniously hand out an award to employees who exhibit that value. And it becomes a source of pride for those employees to display those stones. Some want to get all five because uh, they don't hand them out that liberally. And uh, I think that's a, you know, a nice little metaphor, a nice little way to symbolize, you know, what, the, what they're all about. Or, you know, another company I profiled is a smaller organization, but a, a little less than a thousand people uh, called BDA, which is a sports marketing company. And they adopted Tigger as their mascot, the Winnie the Pooh character, uh, because they wanted their employees to really embody the Tigger spirit. And, the, and to them, Tigger spirit is, you know, being helpful, being optimistic. You know, Tigger's not the smartest cat in the forest, but if Piglet's lost, we're going to go find him, you know, and if somebody's down, I'm going to cheer him up. And you know, they, their CEO has that Tigger spirit, and it's something that uh, got them through some difficult times. And so they joke, they probably have bought more stuffed Tiggers than any company on the planet, but they hand out these stuffed Tiggers to employees who, you know, showcase that Tigger spirit. And employees love, you know, displaying those in their offices or their cubes. So I think those simple little symbols can really help, you know, bring the stories to life as well. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah, I was totally smiling when I read that part. I used to have, as an adult, I used to have one of those tiggers that like you push it down and it would go, I'm going to bounce, boing, 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 boing. <laughs> I was like, I don't know, it just made me happy. So I, I was like, oh, I get it. <laughs> so, right. so um, one of the other principles or uh, steps that you talk about is identifying the influencers, energizers, and blockers. And one of the things I also really appreciate about what you write, and we talk about this in our current book too, is that you know, so often the people who are real leaders in the organization, influencers are lost in the org chart. They don't fit into one of those boxes and really look at how do you map those networks. And you talk about an organization, we have an organization that we feature in ours as well that does similar work. Like how do you map those human networks and recognize that there are so many people who show up as leaders in the organization that may not have the formal job, the formal role, and how do you really leverage them? And what I love about that on so many levels is that the focus of this podcast, and which is another one of our rehumanizing principles, is show up as a leader because we look at leadership as more of a behavior necessarily than a title or role. Yes, there's people that have the title or role, and then I feel like they have an additional responsibility. But at the end of the day, we all have an opportunity to show up as a better version of ourselves, maximize our positive impact, right? And, and support those around us to, to, to do the same and, and that we can really be a leader in our personal life or, or in our um, professional life. And so I just, um, I, I think that we can sell ourselves short as individuals, but we also forget that the leaders don't necessarily reside on that org chart. I love what Barry Waymuller says, you know, leaders are everywhere, find them. Yeah, the problem is finding them. Uh, yeah. So that that's one of the most important steps, I think, out of all these 18 is identifying the influencers and the energizers in your company. Ultimately, you want them to be the culture ambassadors. You want them to be on board with what you're trying to do with culture change. But if you ask senior management who those people are, uh, they get less than half of them right. They miss all kinds of people for the very reason you stated. A lot of times those people are buried on the org chart. Or many times they're introverts, they're not extroverts, right? And so they don't necessarily stand out. But every company and everybody listening to your podcast right now, you have people like this in your, in your organization that they are the, they're the subject matter experts, they are the people others turn to for advice. Sometimes they just turn to them to be, um, to be energized, right? And we all have people like that in our lives where you talk to somebody and you leave that conversation full of ideas and full of energy 
and then there's others like Darth Vader that just suck the <laughs> life out of you, right? So you uh, you want you want those influencers and those energizers to be the champion of the culture change that you're trying to enact. And so we talk in the book a lot about the science of organizational network analysis. Uh, and this is a methodology to um, really uncover those influencers and energizers either through monitoring um, internal collaboration. So in, in some companies will do this, it's a little scary, uh, but they will monitor uh, communication through Teams or through email or through Slack or whatever communication channel you're using to see where, you know, who's at the hub of this communication. Um, I think the better way to do it is through surveys. That way you can really get at who's the energizers inside the organization. And organizational network analysis is a discipline that Rob Cross, who's a professor at, at um, Babson, really is the founding father of. And uh, we work with a lot of companies that really exploit ONA for a lot of different ways, not just for culture change, but they're using it around uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and a number of different programs that they have inside the organization to you know, better roll out those programs. Um, I'm a, I'm a big fan of it, and I think you know as it, as it comes to um, you know collaboration overall, one of the things that we've noticed during the pandemic is there's a lot of people suffering from collaborative overload, uh, especially in, and so some of these top people I'm talking about are your prime candidates to be suffering from collaborative overload because everybody turns to them, and there's so many different ways now to reach people. Even in my own little company, I feel like I have to check 10 different, you know, platforms and, you know, uh, and, and messaging vehicles, right, to see who's, who's sent me a message, you know, who wants some information, et cetera. You want to make it psychologically safe for those people to raise their hand and say, hey, I am suffering from collaborative overload. Um, you know, I, I need some help. And that's important because those people may be your top candidates to leave the organization if they're just burnt out or they, they could be suffering from, you know, real mental, emotional uh, well-being issues if they are that burnt out from all that collaboration. So that's another reason to do organizational network analysis is to really understand who those people are. Cause like I said, it, you know, a lot of times just finding those people in a big organization can be really challenging. Yeah, for sure. So with that, I want to I want to bring this to you, not just as author and doing the research on this, but obviously you are a formal leader, CEO of your own organization. What have been your biggest lessons learned as as a leader over this past year, trying to lead a company through these crazy times? Yeah, I think a lot of um, companies have experienced the same thing, but you've you've got to balance empathy versus results, right? And we we sort of want it all, right? We we recognize that. Uh, if we're going to be successful as a company and for a lot of CEOs, if they're even going to keep their jobs, they've got to execute and they've got to, you know, have a, have a company that's profitable and growing, et cetera. But at the same time, you need to recognize that we we're going through and have gone through a time period that we've never experienced before and everybody's experiencing it differently. And so empathy has never been more important than it is today. And I've had a lot of companies tell me, you know, that the empathy shown by my manager or by senior leadership has been great. It's never been greater, but I'm worried it goes away. You know, if we, you know, get out of this pandemic and, you know, the, the vaccinations work and life returns to a little bit like it used to be, it will never be like it totally was, but uh, you know, gets, gets back to being a little bit more normal. And I, I think that's a good lesson for all companies. I certainly have learned it. You know, sometimes when, you're in the habit of trying to drive results in your company. You got to take a pause, be empathetic. You have no idea what's happening in certain people's lives. You don't know if they're just on the verge of that burnout that I just described, for example, and give them the benefit of the doubt and trust, you know, have trust in your people. They're doing the right thing. Um, and, you know, ultimately they want the right thing for your organization. I, you know, I think those are lessons that, you know, we're always there, but the pandemic has accelerated those and, and brought those to the surface much more than before. For sure. For sure. So with that, I want to transition to kind of a set of questions that I ask all of my guests, because part of this is also we're uh, showing more of the human side and like the, the normalizing the human experience of getting in our own way of what it means to be a leader, et cetera. And so, okay. um, Go so easy. 
Yeah, I will. I will. But um, so th- this is going to be the, the Brene-ish part of the podcast. But my experience is that we all, no matter how successful we've been, no matter how much work we've done on ourselves, we all have these self-limiting stories that we can tell ourselves that can get in our, we can get in our own way. And so my question for you is what is a self-limiting story that you still find yourself sometimes telling yourself? And then when it shows up, how do you move beyond it so you can still show up as a leader? <laughs> Actually, Brene and I laughed about this, um, but I, I said um, one, of, one of my clear faults is I try to roll out too many things at once, right? I have all these you know, different ideas and I think everything can be done tomorrow, right? And, uh, and that everybody can absorb you know, all these different you know, initiatives that we want to, <laughs> that we want to undertake. Brene laughs. She's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, can't relate whatsoever. Yeah, I right. know. <laughs> so I am often just sort of catching myself and I'm hearing the voice, voice of uh, several people on my team who have told me this, you know, that, hey, look, you know, you've got to make sure that people can absorb what we already were, you know, uh, you know, trying to get done, what we were trying to execute on. And, you know, I think the old adage that, um, small companies or startup companies, they often fail because they drown, not because they starve. And so I've got to always be cautious about, you know, don't drown people, uh, make sure that, you know, they, they can absorb what, uh, you know, what you want to get done. So that that's, that's a clear one for me that I'm always trying to work on. And I, I, I fail at that one every week. (laughs) You know what, you're in good company, I swear, same thing. Like, okay, Okay, I have 500 things on my to-do list. Why don't I try five? You know, let's just right, see what right. happened, right? Yeah, no, love it. So um, going back to how we define leadership is it's about maximizing our positive impact um, around us. What is an impactful way that you are showing up as a leader these days, both in your professional life, but also in your personal life? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good one. Um, you know, I think, I think within my organization, uh, you know, I am... I'm trying to make sure that I'm listening to understand, not listening to reply. And I, I just think that's a problem in society in general. Oh, yeah. And I don't always follow this, but uh, too often you find, uh, you know, people are, they're just so uh, anxious to respond and so anxious to reply. They're not really listening to understand the issues. And so I guess I'm trying to do that both in my personal life and in professional life is, uh, take the time to to do deep understanding and have an open mind, right? Uh, uh, you know, we have we have very polarized uh, communities right now uh, in in the workplace, but in, you know, just in you know, certainly in the United States, um, you know, there's been a you know huge division in uh, in opinions, and I think it's important to listen to others to truly understand, but also treat them with respect as you're doing so, and that's that's another you know, big learning and, and advice that, you know, we've had within other organizations is it's okay to disagree uh, as long as you treat each other with respect. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to do that as well. And, you know, just with friends who maybe I don't quite believe in their views, you know, maybe, maybe we differ on, you know, uh, different issues. I'm trying to understand their views and, you know, be respectful in the conversation. I love that. Well, and I think, I feel like almost every, conversation I have period, but particularly in this podcast, the listening has come up and listening to understand. I think that our society would, could have so many wounds healed if we could all practice that more, right? Listening to understand versus reply and what you just shared. Can we lean into curiosity more, right? And seek to understand versus standing in our judgment or shutting down or whatnot. I mean, you know, if, if we could pick a couple big things to work on, man, whew, <laughs> the world would be a little bit better, I'm sure. So. Yes, exactly. Um, well, uh, so I patterned this off of Brene as well, but different questions, but I want to, uh, move into the quick questions section. If you're up for it, they start a little bit more thoughtful and then they kind of get fun and silly just because why not? Right? Okay. And just, okay. just to be clear, I never, I didn't see these questions ahead of nope. time. Nope. <laughs> you did it. You did it. No one does. Well, unless they've listened to previous episodes and you okay. know what they are, but yeah. okay. So fill in the blank living authentically is. Being transparent um, about yourself and and you know viewpoints, I, I always come back to transparency. I just think it's such a, it's honestly an easier way to live. Yeah, 
for sure. For sure. Then you're not like, what did I hide? What did I share? What didn't I share? Yeah. When the world is presenting an opening, but you don't feel like showing up as a leader, what do you do? (laughs) Uh, I think you you suck it up and act is what immediately comes (laughs) into my mind. Suck it up, buttercup. (laughs) Yeah. You know, know, what what that question reminds me of, it's very clear with top organizations, they not only don't fear change, they embrace it and thrive on it. And so that's what that question kind of illuminates to me is, you know, when when change happens, there's going to be opportunities and top companies recognize that and and, and they're gung-ho around it. Where low-performing organizations, they just want everything to stay the same and they, they just hate change, you know, any kind of change, so... Yeah, it reminds me of the saying that, you know, the only thing certain in this life um, besides death and taxes is change. So you might as well lean into it, right? Yeah, for sure. When's the last time you were courageous and how did you show up? Um, I'm going to, you know, I'll say I was courageous, but so were all of my employees uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic. And I'm super, super proud of what we created then. We, um, nobody knew what the world was going to be like. Right. And, you know, when things started shutting down, I always joke that for me, I, I realized this is a, this is going to be a, a life altering event when the NBA announced they were uh, pausing their season, right. And, you know, canceling their season. But we as a company um, realized that we were in a position to help organizations through um, the community that we had established. We have tens of thousands of HR executives and professionals in our community um, and through the research that we knew we could conduct. And so we're, we're entering this period that nobody knew what was going to happen and didn't know what the right things to do were. Uh, we were in a position to have all these companies help each other. And so we set up a, an employer resource site almost overnight, uh, just around uh, COVID, and began conducting um, regular calls with executives around what they were doing during this time frame so that we could call out some of those best practices. And we, we like to talk a lot about next practices, you know, practices that companies can look at for the future. And then we augmented that with, with research. And I guess from a courageous standpoint, I can remember some early conversations where I said, I want to have frequent phone calls um, with, with this audience. And I got a lot of pushback from people who said, well, they're, they're kind of talked out, you know, they don't, you know, are you sure you want to do this, you know, on a weekly basis? I said, no, I don't want to do it on a weekly basis. I want to do it on a daily basis. And that's what we started back in March. We started doing daily phone calls with different HR audiences. And we continue through that uh, to this day, you know, we still continue these, these calls. And it's been immensely, immensely helpful to those organizations. And so I, I, I'm so proud of our company, you know, just rallying to, to make that happen and the courageous efforts of the employees in my company. That's awesome. Well, and, and so needed because just the, the impact that human resource departments and executives have had to deal with this ongoing is just unlike anything before. So that's, that's awesome. That's awesome. What's something people would be surprised to know about you? Um, <laughs> a couple of things. Um, I um, I can be more of an introvert than an extrovert. I think some people are surprised at that. Sometimes I kind of I'm, you know kind of on the borderline there. Um, I joke about this all the time, but uh, I I grew up uh, picking tobacco. The hard and that's the hardest job I ever had in my life. But it was a lot of life lessons for that. Um, and I followed that up by working in a pickle factory, uh, and I love pickles, but if you're a relish lover, um, come see me. Cause there's a lot of things that go into relish that you're not, you're not going to relish. So, so I, I turn off a lot of people to relish, uh, because of that. My husband, I'll have to have a sidebar because my husband loves relish. I'm not a fan of it. So there yeah. you go. I'm going to have to tell him about my days working the relish line. I was oh. horrible at it. Okay. 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 <laughs> All right. So this one is, I I love to use it as a conversation starter. You can be a party starter, icebreaker. You you can take it for your next gathering with your HR executives, but I call it the four C's. So if money and reality were no object, what car would you drive? 
Mm. What country would you visit? What cuisine would you eat? And it doesn't have to have anything to do with the country. And what celebrity living or dead would you want to eat that cuisine with? <laughs> um, car would be a convertible. Uh, so it doesn't matter the, uh, the brand. Um, <clears throat> I, the country, uh, for me, I, I'm a huge fan of Ireland. I, mm. I try to go to Ireland as much as I can. And uh, I'm always relaxed when I get to Ireland. I feel like you step back in time 50 years there and, uh, the, and the people are so great. Um, although the cuisine there is not necessarily. I was going to say, what, you're not going to eat haggis yeah. or whatever. <laughs> so, so I'll also, I'll, I'll shift your mind over, uh, to Italy and, mm. you know, I, I, I could, I can see the convertible, uh, you know, just, uh, south of Florence, you know, in the hills of Italy and, and the great cuisine and then celebrity boy, there's so many, um, you know, if, um, if language wasn't a barrier, uh, Da Vinci is somebody that I'd love to bring back to life and just really under, you know, listen to Da Vinci. Cause I, I read about Da Vinci every chance I can get. And I, I'm just fascinated by what he was able to do, um, so many years ago. And, you know, that, that, that mind must've just been so interesting to talk to. Yeah. I love that. That's fantastic. All right. Your favorite go-to movie. Uh, Forrest Gump. Oh, love it. Love <laughs> it. Your go-to song. Oh yeah. Brene made me do my playlist, right? Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I'm kind of a rock guy. My, my brother grew up in rock bands. Um, <clears throat> you know, I'll say, um, how soon is now by the Smiths. Oh, nice. I love the Smiths. Your signature dance move. I, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> you just stand there or do you do the swing as much as possible <laughs> <laughs> you're like i'm gonna go get something to drink yeah go right okay. i'm good at that yeah. uh in another life your job or career would be um yeah, i'm always fascinated by marketing to tell you the truth i uh you know I, I just think it's fun to be creative and you know be thrown at a problem and try to you know try to solve that so that that always was interesting to me, but I, I was a journalism major, uh, in college. And so I, I do kind of miss, you know, that, you know, the whole concept of being a journalist and, you know, I, I could definitely have seen myself pick that career. Once upon a time, that was when I first went off to college, that was one of my potential majors. I was like undecided and I had like three different years and journalism was one. So get that. Okay, I say something lightly because it doesn't have to be a thing, but what's something you can't live without? <laughs> wow, there's lots. Um, <clears throat> oh, just, you know, listening to my kids every day, um, you know, and, and hearing what, you know, what they did during their day, that would be tough to live without, that's for sure. Yeah. What's something in your ordinary daily life that makes your heart happy? <laughs> um. <laughs> You know, I, I honestly, I wake up every morning energized just to see what's going on in my own company. <laughs> and I'm, I'm an East Coaster. Uh, you know, I was born on the East Coast, but now I live on the West Coast. And so, you know, the, it's always interesting to wake up and half the country's already been, you know, already got stuff going on. So I've already, you know, my inbox is usually full by the time I wake up. So I get, I get just excited, you know, waking up and trying to see, hey, what's happening, you know, in the organization. I like that. I like that. And last but not least, what are you grateful for right now? I'm grateful for all these great questions, Rosie, and I'm grateful for the uh, the reaction that people have had to the book. You know, just seeing all the tabs that you have in your own book, you know, that makes it feel like, okay, all that time and effort, you know, that we put into the research to create the book and then write the book was worthwhile. So thank you for being a voracious reader of it. Yes. Well, yeah, you're welcome. And yeah, I am one, you know, one of the things that I always love to do is when I find a book that's got great research behind it and great tactical stuff, especially when it enhances or builds on or challenges what we do, 
um, we always like to bring it back to our audiences and say, hey, like, and here's another way. And hey, here's, you know, I just think that um, the, the more that we can broaden and keep collecting research, I'm just such a such a huge fan of it. So I'm very excited to see hopefully your book is going to do really, really well. And I'm very excited for the work you do and, and to keep following the research you're doing, because I just think it's so important. It definitely influences the work that we do um, with our clients. I know we're not allowed to come to your, your conference because we're consultants, but I'm super excited to use it and share it and just be a fan. So thank you for the work you do. Thank you for being here and just thank you for our conversation. Well, I appreciate you inviting me. Thank you so much for listening to show up as a leader. If you haven't yet subscribed, you can find us on Apple podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. I'm Rosie Ward, and you can find me online at drrosieward.com where you'll be able to sign up for my newsletter, check out the books I'm reading and hear from the people I'm talking to. You can also get more information on what I'm up to professionally, including my coaching and speaking services. You can also find me on LinkedIn at R Ward, Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Rosie Ward, or email me at rosie at drrosieward.com. And I just want to remind you to remember that you have the choice every day to show up as a leader. So choose courage over comfort, embrace your humanity, and never, ever dull your sparkle. Take care, everyone.